just watched. So I wonder if we might just pause for a moment and pray and invite God to speak to us today as I do what we're calling a straight talk titled, How Do We All Get Along? Why don't you join me and let's pray. Father, we just want to pause right now, wherever and whenever we're listening to these words, we ask that you might speak to us, that you might speak to us about your truths and your insights, that you might open up our hearts and minds that we might receive from you today. And I pray and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you might just imagine for a moment that you are on an aircraft and it's a Boeing 747. And uh, it's an A380, and it's one of those larger passenger aircraft. And uh, you've actually been sitting on that aircraft and banking around the uh, airport for what seems like, well, maybe two years now. And uh, you've been actually banking and circling the airport, looking for a place to land, but the actual uh, control tower hasn't allowed you to because there's been some problems on the ground they've been trying to resolve before we can land the aircraft. Now, the problem with being two years actually in that aircraft is that, frankly, you're a little bit tired and exhausted, everyone's a little bit worn thin, and you're a little bit stretched out. You've listened to all the in-flight media services. In fact, you've watched all the entertainment so much now that you can actually lip-sync the next words. And that chicken curry and beef stroganoff that's been reheated time and time again is wearing a little bit thin. And in fact, the window seat has kind of lost a bit of its luster. And you're just looking forward to landing and getting on with life. Just as you're thinking about all these things, you actually hear the pilot over the PA system and he's got a great good news announcement because he said that there's some signals from the control tower that says that maybe shortly soon you'll be able to actually engage the landing gear and land that plane and then you will be able to, if you like, finally get to the arrivals. As you're thinking about those things, he's also drawn your attention to the fact that as you actually land the aircraft and disembark, you're probably going to have to pass through customs. And in fact, as you move through customs, you are going to discover that there's one queue for people who have a visa and for another queue for people who don't have a visa. And for the first time, you're thinking, you're wondering how that will actually happen because you've been with these people for the last two years circling the aircraft and now that as you disembark you're all of a sudden challenged or confronted or the realisation that there's going to be two different queues. There's one that's much longer and there's one that there's, there's shorter. And you're wondering for the first time, you, you might actually find that you're looking across at someone that you know and you're realising that you're actually in different queues. And one of the questions that's probably both going through your sets of minds as you're looking at one another for the first time in this kind of arrangement is the question, why on earth are you in that queue? Well, just as you're thinking those thoughts, you realise that there's another PA system that's actually um, pushing you along. In fact, it feels a little intense and it kind of feels as though it's corralling you forward and coaxing you. And so much so, as it's sort of instructing and giving orders in, in the airport... It makes you wonder, people feel who are in the shorter line, that maybe they're actually going to be in quarantine for the rest of their natural life. And you've actually been instructed it's probably just for a short duration, an interim time. But that kind of messaging is a little bit confusing. And 
you're wondering if that might just exacerbate the whole thing. As you're thinking about those thoughts too, you look around and you realize yours isn't the only aircraft that's landing. In fact, there's aircraft landing from all over the world at the airport. And in the arrivals, you realize that it's not just your aircraft that has two different lines, but people from all different walks of life are lining up in those queues. And there's one that's much longer than the other, and there's one that's shorter than the other. And you're just thinking about how this is going to work, particularly on the other side as you engage back into whatever normal life is going to look like. When the pilot in your aircraft, he makes another announcement. Perhaps even anticipating all of these things that you've been considering and reflecting upon. And he says this. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in order to prepare for a pleasant arrival, I wonder if you might consider this question for a moment. How on earth are we going to get along? And in that moment, you sense a collective inhale from the entire aircraft. And you have that little pregnant pause And you notice that you, along with a lot of other people, reach forward to the headphones that you have in front of you and you slide them on your head and you press the in-flight entertainment and you snuggle back into your chair. Well, if that approximates anything of the experiences that some of those people might be encountering, I wonder if the Bible says anything about answering that particular question that the pilots just asked. How on earth are we going to get along? What I'd love you to do, I reckon that today is the kind of day that you want to grab a Bible. I'd like us to turn some pages. And what I'd love us to do is to open ourselves up to hear from what God's truth might say to us as we turn pages as we interact with certain texts and we hear from God. Because believe it or not, there are some places that we can go in the text that might inform us about some of the questions that the pilot was asking us to consider. How do we get along? In fact, if uh, you were a person who were living in those early days of the Christian development, if you like, as the explosion of this good news about Jesus was heading out from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, you would be well aware that there were certain particular complex issues that the early church had to face in order to navigate a way forward. Why? Because there was a man called Jesus who seemed to announce that as God's son that his father's inbreaking kingdom was laying claim to all other kings and queens on earth. And in fact, that the promise he'd made to Abraham all those centuries ago was now coming to life in his work. And his plan was to bring together two different people groups, chosen people of God, the Jewish people of Jewish ethnicity, And all the other groups called the Gentile people from the Greco-Roman and beyond world. And Jesus planned to actually bring restoration to the world, if you like, to actually bring forward God's plans. Was to actually unify one family under one king and boss and lord who had one father, God himself. And you realize that if those two people groups were going to come together and join one family... If you've had any experience with families, you know that there are rarely straight lines drawn. In fact, there's hiccups along the way. And so what you recognize is that maybe there's certain things 
that we can plumb and discover that might be of insight for us? Well, the first one is, and if you take your Bible there, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. But the first complex issue that that early group of Jesus followers had to, if you like, navigate was a question regarding membership. And I'm going to go the correct way. So there we go. What constitutes membership in God's family? Now, if you were a Jewish person who'd grown up in a Jewish ethnic family, that would be a question you could answer really easily. In fact, you would say, well, we have an ancestor. His name's Abraham. We have a teacher by the name of Moses. He gave us God's commandments. We have the tablets. We were the called people. What do you mean? What is the sign of membership into the family of God? We are the ones who have that covenant, that partnership, that agreement with him. In fact, if you were a a Jewish boy, you would say, well, actually, on the eighth day of my birth, my parents actually had me circumcised. And if you want to ask me what is a sign of my membership in God's family, well, I don't have to tell you. I don't have to look any further because it's circumcision. It's actually being a called people of God, but it's also being circumcised. Now, imagine that you're living up in the Asia Minor, an area called Galatia, modern-day Turkey. And you were from a Greco-Roman family, but one day you were out in the marketplace and you heard a man by the name of Paul. He was a Jewish person, but he said he was a follower of Jesus, which was similar but kind of different. And you heard him in the marketplace talking about this amazing man called Jesus. He's the one who actually had died on a Roman cross, but actually had come to new life. And he was claiming that he was the true king and boss of the world. He was not only Israel's Messiah, but he was actually the Roman, Greco-Roman world's true Lord and King. And when you heard those words, something took place within you that kind of just struck you deep to the core. It was as though your heart was changed. In the moment in which you received the truth of those words and welcomed him into your life, it was as though you had a new vision of life. And as a Greco-Roman person, you discovered that you were being welcomed into this family that was decidedly Jewish, but you had also these other ethnic sort of customs and practices. And you wonder how you are actually going to make it all work. And just as a new follower of Jesus, you are learning about that. One day, a group of people come from Jerusalem who claim to be Christians, but they are also people who have a decidedly Jewish ethnic background, and they give you some new information. They say to you, well, what we want you to know is that if you are a real true follower of Jesus, what it requires is that not only do you need to place your belief in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. Now, as a guy who's grown up in a Greco-Roman world, you've always thought that that was a kind of strange, curious practice for Jewish people. In fact, you were a little bit suspect of them at times and the way in which the different things they chose to opt out of. But nonetheless... The people sound really convincing. And even though you know it might be a little bit painful, you kind of start to wonder if actually you're missing out on something. If Paul really got it right. Maybe it is Jesus plus circumcision is the defining sign that you're actually part of God's family. Well, let's pick up the story because it's from Galatians chapter 3. I want to read some words to you. And this is what it says. Paul hears word and gets wind that there's this group that's causing trouble. And so he writes to the Galatians and to you and he says this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. 
I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you had heard? And then he goes on and he says this. Are you so foolish? Having started with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? What Paul was trying to say to them is that I want you to understand that what constituted you entering into God's family and having that mark of membership wasn't anything that people do with human hands, but it's something that God does with his spirit. You see, when you first opened up your heart and mind to receive Jesus into your life, he filled you with his very presence, his spirit. And when he did that, he transformed you from the inside out. So all of those other demarcations that might have been and had some merit and worth in the past are no longer part of what constitutes being a person of God. In fact, the good news that you're hearing from Paul is that you don't have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. Neither the other way around. The Jewish people didn't have to become sort of pagan in orientation. In fact, there was a new set and there was a new criteria. In fact, this is one of those moments where Paul, if you like, he digs his heels in and he does not mince his words. He carries this conviction that one of the bedrock if you like, aspects, one of the very few that constitutes membership in God's family is membership equals Jesus plus nothing. If you want to add anything to Jesus, he says, you'll be getting it wrong. So if you like, he draws a line in the sand, one of those bedrock convictions, and he said it is Jesus and faith in him and his spirit's reception into your life and nothing he presses on and he says this in a different way he says these words for through the spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness or the justice for which we hope for that is that one day through faith in Jesus God's going to set this world to rights and is going to bring his rightness and his justice to the world and that's what we hope for and what constitutes that more than anything else nothing else but faith in Jesus receiving him into your life and then he presses on and he says these words for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value not that those things were worthless in past practice but the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Can't make it any clearer. Just Jesus. In fact, for those who think that the Bible might be a little bit boring, I find it hardly because of the next words he says. Now I'm a visual person, so just heads up parents, a little bit of communication here. He even presses it even harder and he says, so I want to tell you about those agitators. As far as those agitators go, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He says, I wish the cutters would just keep on cutting. <laughs> Woo. Doesn't mince his words, doesn't help being a visual person. However, this is what he says to them. When someone comes and wants to rock that bedrock conviction in your life, I want you to stand firm. He says, the Messiah set us free so that we could enjoy freedom. So stand firm and don't get yourselves tied down by the chains of slavery. In fact, he pushes it just a little bit further and he gives them a caution and a call. And I might just have that up here so I can see that. But you must not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He says, be careful, though, if you have come to the understanding that there's freedom now for your life, 
Don't circle all the way back again and start to put your own demarcations, if you like, upon what constitutes membership in and out. It is just Jesus. And secondly, he says this, rather, you must become each other's servants through love. So there you are. You're standing in the queue in customs. And you're looking across at the other group. And how easy it is to actually want to point a finger and scratch your head and say, how on earth did you end up in that line? When you're reminded, how do you get along? Is that you need to recognize that you're actually part of the same family. And what constitutes being part of the same family is Jesus. Just Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. So whilst you're inclined to point the finger, you feel a tug at the heart and realize that maybe what you need to do, rather than point a finger, try really hard to extend a hand because you're part of the same family. Just Jesus. Then, of course, there's a, um, another question complex question that the early followers of Jesus had to wrestle with. Once, if you like, they felt that they had that membership issue to the side. There was another one that was really closely related, had to do with ethnic origins and Jewishness and pagan practice. And how were those two things going to mix together? The issue had to do with who you shared your table with around food, or in particular, meat. You see, if you came from a Jewish family, you would have understood from the very beginning part of your life, you were told to differentiate between what foods were clean and what were considered unclean. If you grew up and you were eating meat, you would understand that there were some clean animals and unclean animals. The unclean animals were the ones who pretty much had bifurcated hooves. But even more than that, you realized that there was an issue with blood. You see, you had been asked in the book of Leviticus to make sure that you actually didn't drink any of the blood. Why? Because rightly so, life was in the blood. And rightly, all life belonged to God. So that's why he asked you not to eat the blood. You had to make sure it was poured out. But then when you came to discover Jesus, you also heard that there was a practice, a an inclusive element in which if we wanted to include those people outside of our ethnic group, then there were also some new breakthroughs, if you like. And so that delineation between what was sacred and and what was profane that instructed you something about who God was no longer held the same kind of sway. Because if you were brought up in a Greco-Roman world, you looked at those things fundamentally different. In fact, when it came to meat, you loved all kinds of meat. In fact, if you were living in Turkey, modern day, sort of modern day Turkey, ancient Galatia, you would have enjoyed going to the marketplace and choosing all different kinds of meats. In fact, one of the meats that you loved more than anything else, a meat that was so easy to produce because you could have a, a, a large litter, was none other than pork, the bifurcated hoof kind of meat. And the thing that you loved about pork more than anything else is that you just couldn't imagine life without pork crackling. 
I mean, it was something you looked forward to whenever you could. You rotisserie that pork and you would just make the best crackling. And you thought it was crazy to think that pork crackling was wrong. I mean, after all, this food is just delicious. But then there was another challenge because you realize that when you start to actually get together and mix as Jesus followers, that all of a sudden there were some people who took offense at maybe the kind of meat that you ate. And you wondered why other people would possibly abstain. And then the penny finally dropped. You know that guy that's been sitting next to you for the last two years on the aircraft? Maybe the very reason why he's actually been passing up the the reheated curry chicken and and the beef stroganoff is because he's maybe a Christian from an ethnic Jewish background. And so that's why he's been going vego the whole time. And you've been wondering, have I offended him in some way? Or have I kind of been insensitive in the way I've been sort of asking him, could I have his serving of chicken if he didn't want it? And I wonder what Paul would say in the mix of all of this. Well, he had something to say. And he said it very clearly. Why don't you take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Because Paul on these matters of meat and food, he is very unequivocal as well. He says this, I'm convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Let me just read that again for you. Because it kind of feels like a little bit of a double take. I'm convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that is in relationship to him, or words that we heard from him, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. In other words, Paul seems to be able to navigate some of these issues, if you like, these different variances in practice, by suggesting this, that... Someone who is a Jesus follower can hold the same conviction about who Jesus is and therefore be part of membership in his family, but that you can also have a different opinion when it comes to certain matters. In fact, there's a a little bit of qualification that probably needs to happen, but just at the overall broad side, Paul's trying to suggest that You actually belong to the same family because you follow Jesus. But it's quite possible within that family to hold different opinions. You know, over the past number of weeks and months as I've spoken to different pastors from churches all around the state, as I've interacted with people, listened, talked, batted some things out, I realize as a vaccinated person that there are different reasons that other people have chosen not to. I think they can be summed up in the following sort of four ideas. There's some people I've come to understand who just are uncertain about the vaccine. There's others who are uncertain about the media, governments, and trustworthiness. There are some who wonder if this might reflect some biblical understanding of end times. And there are some who actually are just a little bit concerned about the mandates. After all, we're a bit of a laid-back bunch here in Australia. We've enjoyed the freedoms of decision-making and probably our rule of law and governance and being able to vote on things in our democracy. So all of a sudden to have some new kind of ideas and idea of mandate kind of being pushed 
and directed towards us kind of feels a little bit un-Australian even. And so there's all of these different things that are, if you like, bubbling around and being considered. And if you like, as I've sought to listen and to understand, I realize that someone might hold one of these positions or maybe all four of them or in different parts and that they have a different opinion. So here I am standing in a different queue and we're looking at one another. And I wonder if we're allowed to have different opinions on some things, how Paul might direct us. Well, he says this in chapter 14, verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. Now, what would have that practically meant back then in those ancient times? Well, it means that if I'm actually having a dinner party and I invite some of my Jesus follower friends from a Jewish ethnic background to my house... I might not actually decide that that particular night I'm going to have pork roast on the barbecue. And that that, in fact, is the only thing that we're going to actually offer them. In fact, when I'm sitting there, I'm not going to invite them to my place, knowing that they actually might be quite sensitive to that, and, and actually eat that meat in front of them and sort of tell them how lovely and delightful is it pork crackling. And boy, aren't they just missing out. I mean, to do that would kind of be one of those insensitive things that would be kind of like a stumbling block, an offense, a provocation. I mean, don't get me wrong. Paul, in his understanding, isn't saying that he actually decides that he's never going to eat pork. He's just quite deliberate about how he goes doing that in the company that he's in. In fact, he presses it a little bit further and he says this, God's kingdom, you see, isn't about food and drink, but it's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I guess he was trying to say is that you might have a different opinion on some things. You're part of the same family, but you can be free to disagree. But I want you to do it agreeably. So there you are in the queue, in the line, in customs, and you're considering all these things. And I wonder if the pilot might whisper and invite us all to think and pause for a moment and say, if you had a gift you could offer someone during this season, what would it be about the way in which you posture yourself with someone else? Well, I've got four. Here's the first one. Suspend judgment. You know, to suspend judgment requires this. It requires you to actually take hold of the judgment, get some string, actually wrap it around as best you can, tie a knot in it, and then you suspend it on the rafter of your roof and you leave it there and it's suspended. The trick with suspended judgment is you've got to remember that you've suspended it and left it there. Because, you know, when you're in a conversation with someone and a thought comes and jumps quickly into your head, it's so easy to reach for that judgment. Rather than to tell yourself, no, wait a second, that's the judgment I suspended. It's suspending. I wonder if one of the greatest gifts we can give to one another, whether it's people within our community or people outside of our community, is the gift of suspending judgment. The second gift I think that we could give each other most profoundly during this time, particularly because of isolation, is the gift of being a sounding board. 
You know, one of the things that I think we've lost and we probably are learning to appreciate more than anything is being able to let off some steam without judgment. I mean, you know what I mean? You can go home and actually have someone as a sounding board is a gift. And not everyone has that. So to be able to walk with someone and talk with someone, suspending judgment with actually allowing them to just get some things off their chest because it's just a gift being able to get some things off your chest. You know what I mean? Someone's taken 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes to listen to you and you walk away from that conversation going, you know what? I just feel a little bit lighter. I feel like I just got something off my chest. I didn't have to batter that. I just got it off and that was good and that was done. The gift of being a sounding board. The third gift I think we could give ourselves during this season is the gift of promoting peace. You see, the gift of promoting peace involves you deciding that it's not about winning an argument or even trying to change someone's mind. It's about actually saying the most important thing to me in this conversation right now is a friendship and promoting of peace. That doesn't mean that you can't wrestle out really important and have really important discussions, but I just know how quickly you can tip those discussions into something that's far more heated. In fact, it might be in the midst of a conversation that you're having is that you have to say to yourself again and again and again, remember, I'm supposed to be promoting peace. I had someone yesterday say it to me quite well. They said, they said, actually, we need to have a gift of listening with curiosity, promoting peace. And the fourth gift, the one that actually might be the most confronting or confusing is this. It's the gift of modifying our behavior. That is removing stumbling blocks from other people so they don't cause inadvertent stress and distress and offense. You see, Paul goes on and he says these words, and it's really important for us about this fourth gift, if we're going to do it sincerely. He says this, All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or your sister to fall. In other words, what he's suggesting that people need to do is actually modify their behavior for the benefit of the person who might be more sensitive about something. Now, as you hear this, you might be thinking, no, that's just compromising, Paul. And no, no, it's not compromising. In fact, I'd put it like this. Modifying behavior is not compromising behavior. It's Christ-like behavior. You see, what would that mean to someone who I go to and are more sensitive about vaccination or uh, health and safety? It means if I turn up to someone's place and they're wearing a full PPE and they have an extra one at the door. Actually, if if I'm actually going to do something that's loving for them and to them and to signal that, I actually might say, actually, I, I don't have quite that same sensitivity. I want to be wise. But for the sake of the conversation with the person, I might don on PPE so that I actually might extend a hand of friendship to them and interact with them. In fact, I wonder what it would look like if we decided to remove stumbling blocks, how that might affect our social media use and what we post. Because the things that you post might inadvertently, if you like, not only be letting off some steam for you, but actually might be causing an offense to someone else or put a stumbling block up that in some way would be kind of an insensitive thing because you realize that we might be part of the same family but have different opinions. So it actually might moderate what you put out and put forth 
as a result of it. Why? Because Paul over and over and over and over again says words to the effect of this. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual building up and edification. So you want to suggest to you this morning that love takes effort. It's just Jesus for sure. But it's also modifying behavior for the sake of someone else. It's deferring for love. So, the pilot's just signaled to you again. The landing gear has been engaged. We've only got a few more circuits banking around the control tower. We're about to land. And he whispers to us again, because he's put a pause on all the in-flight entertainment. And he says, I wonder how you're going to get along. This week we sent out a letter. As church council and pastoral team has considered and reflected about a pathway forward. We've decided together as a leadership group that we don't see our positioning and we don't see the church as being part of a persecuted minority. We've seen this as a public health concern. Why don't I think we need to be concerned about the Jesus followers being persecuted? Because if our state government can shut down the CFMEU for two weeks because their work sites seem to be spreading things, then you can be rest assured that there's no government that's picking on one particular group. In fact, what we've decided to do is follow the words of 1 Peter that you can find in 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 17. That there is an order to our system that reflects something of the order of God. There might be times in which we need to protest or even have some civil disobedience. But that's usually when there's an oppressive injustice that's seeking after one minority group. And we don't think that this is a time like that. And so for the sake of the whole, we've chosen to go down and reaffirm the public health of the whole. You know, we've been weathering a storm these past two years. Sometimes we do our best discipling in the storm. But we also want to make sure that we don't create other spot fires and storms along the way. And so we're inviting God to steer us, to shape us forward. Today I was going to talk and address two questions. How do we get along? And that's been enough for now. But what I also want to talk about in the coming weeks ahead is, what are the opportunities before us? Because I think if we were to snap back straight away and get back to business as usual, we would be missing a great opportunity. But more of that to come. But for now, let's position ourselves in customs. The arrivals lounge is on the other side. And hear the words of Jesus to us. Let me pray and then we're going to hear a song. I invite that God might speak to you. Lord Jesus, here in this place right now, I ask that you might speak.
So I ask that your truth and your wisdom might resonate deeply within us, causing us to operate and behave in a way that reflects you. Love is often hard fought and it takes effort. Would you give us all the power and the strength that comes through you and your spirit to map that way forward? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.